Now that, to me, is the sound of my childhood. That song, Scorpion's Wind of Change, probably defines my attitude about my country, my belief system about the United States of America, and the future of the globe as a child of the 1980s more than anything else. Uh, We'll try to put a link to that video for YouTube in the, the show notes today. You go look at it. You see all this footage that they flash across the screen about all these wars that are ending. At least that's the theory here. They're coming to an end. And for me, and I think a lot of people my age, we bought it. We thought, yeah, it's the future. That's the future, the wind of change. And then the whole thing was about the coming down of that wall over there in Berlin. This is a brief history of power with two white guys. I'm Pastor Jonathan Fisk. I got Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz here with me as well. And we're just going to dive right in to East Germany. What happened? Uh, we touched on it a little bit last week, but what happened to make it what it was what it is and why it matters now as we ask questions like, you know, what's next for the United States of America and its own interesting disintegration. Right. And last week we mentioned a guy who was a young KGB agent in the 1970s and 1980s in East Germany, uh, now president for life of Russia, uh, Vladimir Putin. And uh, his presence in East Germany was an indicator of something that is where we're going to start off today with the idea that we've brought up before that power can either be transparent or obscured just because it can't be seen exactly or isn't obvious doesn't mean that it's not there and it may be even more complete and authoritative than transparent power. Putin is in East Germany because everyone is clear that beneath a very thin veneer of rhetoric of friendship or brotherhood among socialist countries, the Soviet Union is actually in control of East Germany. So something that is mirrored in the West by, the, by NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which is why we still have bases, for instance, in Germany, mm-hmm. the United States does, is a little bit more transparent in the case of the Eastern Bloc countries because East German children, after they learn a sufficient amount of German, don't learn English or French or you know Latin or something. They learn Russian because that's the regime that's actually in control and everyone knows it. And you can just have KGB agents in East Germany because they're keeping their eye on things and uh, everyone knows it. So that doesn't mean that it's good power or that it was being used for a good or a bad purpose necessarily. It simply means that it was pretty straightforward. And that is something that when you look at all the stuff that's in place, say in, I don't know, 1984, right? A time probably before people can imagine the wall coming down exactly or can imagine it happening within the next five years. In 1984, East Germany is actually in some ways more successfully doing the things that the Soviet Union was attempting to do in what we were talking about last time. So like last time I said, hey, they have all these, they have this, this series of geriatric leaders, one dying right after the other. And one of them, Andropov, tried very hard to get the Soviet Union to kind of get back on course. And that's just about 1984. In 1984 in East Germany, you also have an old leader, but there is a way in which both in the East and in the West, West Germany and the broader capital W West, people recognize that East Germany is actually kind of implementing Marxist-Leninist ideology better than anywhere else. That is, 
Germans don't necessarily invent ideologies, but they go at them better than anyone else does. <laughs> we will make the line straighter than anyone has ever made them. And the yeah, triangles yeah. and the boxes will stand forever. I think I, you know, I think I think that's there's probably something to that. So. I don't know what it is, and I'm only I only got you know some German in me, but I've been raised in an LCMS culture. I've learned very yeah. well. It's about coloring inside the lines with vigor. Right, right. You do what you're told to do, and you and you and you do it thoroughly. So, which is I, I should uh, say, well, well, I, well, I've got the floor for half a sec. Yeah. This is why the Germany has gone wrong so many ways in its history. Uh, it has embraced ideologies and applied them with whole heart and exposed their flaws, basically. Uh, and I think national socialism, for my part, is over. Like, there's nothing left for it. We shouldn't try. And thanks be to the Germans who did. And we, you know, it was stopped and whatnot. Right. But this is this is the thing is that their their strength is also their weakness. And as you continue to talk about now, you know, their application of communism. I'm really curious about that, because clearly in my memory, East Germany was like this terrifyingly powerful little country and that's i don't know olympics again speaking but still it, it meant a lot symbolically back then well yeah and the olympics are an example of this because it's it's an example where like the soviet union east germany has a very state coordinated athletic system and it's it's all out there whereas i would say that in america we also have coordinated athletic systems to get olympic success they're just not quite as efficient. You can't target them as much, and it requires a lot more money. But East Germany does what the Soviet Union does. But if you look at it, although they're implementing the same program, so we're going to succeed in high visibility Olympic sports, especially, right? East Germany disproportionately is successful, mm -hmm. right? Like correct. Russia is an enormous country, right? But the, the, the mirror image to East Germany would be not Russia, but like China or India, countries that are either socialist or communist that punch way below their weight in the Olympics. Right. East Germany really is a kind of a tiny country in the whole scheme of things and is vastly disproportionately successful in both summer and winter Olympics because of these coordinated athletic programs where you're identified at a young age and brought up. This this happens in in Western Europe with say soccer, but it's it's controlled by corporations right, in that right, sense right, and right. wealthy investors instead of the state. There's a great book uh, called Outliers about hockey players in America and how if mm -hmm. you're born in the right month, you basically are guaranteed a better track and a better ability because of the way the programs just compel you to greatness. Um, huh, so Outliers. Yeah. I'm trying to think of the name of that. Malcolm Malcolm Gladwell. Outliers. Great great book. So. That uh, Olympics is actually kind of a good index in this way, because, you know, if you if you know anything about the Olympics in the 80s, you probably know Katerina Witt. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, so it's like the odds that somebody from a country that small would be that successful are actually pretty low. But because of their concentration, they, yeah. they were actually pretty good. And the more you go into not every kind of technology, because the Soviet Union did do something similar to the United States where the development of certain things was reserved for Soviets. But there are other parallels going on and on, starting with a space program. Yeah, where that's, both so the Soviets, I, yeah. yeah, go ahead. I yeah. was gonna ask, so it's, it's the Cold War was a Cold War because it was a advertising war. It was a mm -hmm. marketing war and your brand mm -hmm. of government was what you were marketing. And you had several places where that was really shown. Olympics was one, and I was just thinking, so yeah. the other place was the space race. So that was sooner, I think, right? So the Olympics yeah, is sort much, of like learning early. from the success of the space race 
and trying to fight back. And in this way, also, just before we move on from it, I think, Mm -hmm. East Germany's success at that time then, they were like the Marxist poster child for this entire publicity campaign cold right. war that was going on right. which is what makes their it's it's turnaround so uh stunning i suppose uh, right. it's the right. place where it all kind of collapses right because what you're looking at with the, the the beginnings of the space race in the late 40s and early 50s when nasa actually becomes a thing it converting from naca or or naca is what people call it they didn't call it naca but we, we start having the modern version of our space agency, the Soviets, theirs. We're both kind of living off the rocketry research done by Germans without adjectives during the <laughs> Second World War. We run Operation Paperclip to get German scientists into NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. They are basically just, <laughs> and this is again, sort of in some ways the greater transparency of Soviet power, they just take them captive or hold them as POWs (laughs) in places like Kazakhstan. But it's the same dynamic. A captive people with a certain scientific capacity are used by a much larger post-war power for their own military goals. So East Germans disproportionately important to the Soviet space program. But if you're looking at, whether you're looking at Olympics or you're looking at rocketry, even the ideological aspects of East Germany were in their own way more thorough. So another example would be the East Germans being in a predominantly Lutheran area of Germany. So this is, East Germany is is a little bit deceptive unless you know German geography. East Germany is really Northeastern Germany. So take like the Northeastern quadrant of Germany and that's really East Germany, the state. It's overwhelmingly Lutheran historically in religion and Lutherans for reasons that are not theologically coherent, but are very much historically coherent, uh, obsess over a, an adolescent rite of passage called confirmation, which you're going to go through when you're roughly 14 years old. Mm-hmm. And this involves religious instruction and then promises to be a faithful member of the Lutheran church the rest of your life. It also historically has to do with becoming an adult in Germany, his, you know, throughout history. What the Communist Party of Germany does very successfully is they, they, they completely ape the Soviet youth organization Komsomol and produce an organization called Young Pioneers. Young Pioneers invents a ceremony called Jugendweihe, which means youth dedication or consecration. And it runs precisely parallel to confirmation. <laughs> totally parallel. There's even a ceremony very much unlike anything you're going to find otherwise, but very much resembling Lutheran church ceremonies, but obviously with atheism instead of Christian theism and and so on. But ritualistically, it's going to resemble confirmation and you're given a very stark option. So in this way, it's very transparent. Again, towards the end of the episode, we'll compare this, say, to like American public school. Very transparently, if you're a teenager, You can stay in the Lutheran church and you can go through confirmation, but that means that you're probably never going to be able to go to university ever. So you will never be preferred for hiring in anything and everyone knows it. Or you can go through Jugendweihe, which is going to induct you into atheism, dialectical materialism, just basic Marxist ideology, obviously because they're Germans, very well and clearly and thoroughly communicated. And This is kind of like where, 
everybody's okay with stereotypes when we talk about Germans. So I don't feel self-conscious today, you know, cause like the media still does this, but it is true. <laughs> they were very clear and very thorough and everyone had to do it. You go through Jugendweihe and your life opens up. You go through Lutheran confirmation and your life is closed down. You can fix cars. That's kind of it. So yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, I, it's it's amazing and interesting, and I think you're just going to say something more interesting than I possibly could. I mean, okay. fixing cars doesn't <laughs> sound like such a bad job, but then again, this is this is called slavery and other types of histories. Correct. Right. Right. And so, so the trick here is that Marxism-Leninism, with the hyphen in between, is savvier than pure Marxism, and it's really something that. If readers are interested or readers, listeners are interested, this is something we're both going to go into more, but it's also something to understand is that what you get when communism actually comes to power is a modification of communism adjusted for the realities of dealing with groups of human beings. Because obviously Marx is not a practical politician, but Lenin has to be. It's also why you get something resembling Leninism or a further development, Stalinism, which is just limiting the Marxist project to a single country instead of being evangelistic about it. You always get that because you have to deal with the fact that like you will have human classes. So the resolution that I think East Germany comes down to in a way that is more thoroughgoing than the Soviet Union, they're also dealing with a lot less territory and a much more homogeneous population, is to say, okay, there's going to be stratification. What we're going to do is instead of just physically exterminating all of the Christians or all of the people who used to be bourgeois or who used to be well-educated, let's say Lutheran pastors, because they're kind of socially equivalent to doctors and lawyers in a Lutheran country, instead of just liquidating them as Stalin did, we've learned our lesson because East Germany doesn't exist until the late 1940s as its own state. We're not going to just liquidate people. We understand it doesn't work. It creates too much resentment and it's just destructive. Yeah, it's not what good we'll... for the press. I mean, you know, yeah. you, you got you got to have this whole optics thing still. We, we're in the middle of a, or working our way toward a, a, a Cold War based upon what things look like and lining people up and shooting them doesn't look good. But helping these poor people who can't take care of themselves find a way to work on cars the rest of their life, well, that, that kind of re-education is really valuable. Yeah, I th I think that I think that they had learned some lessons by the time you get the the Warsaw Pact countries, so post World War II, hmm. because I, I there's a sense in which I'm I'm not sure it's I, I'm not sure it's primarily about media because I don't think that I think that they were more cynical about media than Americans maybe have been until very recently. And everyone knew that the media was lying to some extent. Like mm. the official newspaper was basically just to get the official view out there. No one, including the party, thought that it was, strictly speaking, the truth. But I, 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 I think that they understood that, practically speaking, it is you're investing way too much energy in liquidating classes of people when you could just somewhat more passively yeah. redirect. Yeah, It's just not economically efficient. Right to have to right. deal with all those bodies, burn them, yep. gas them. That's expensive. They could be free labor. Well, it's it's yeah. I I would say it's a waste of resources and labor. And and East Germany, unlike the Soviet Union, for instance, does not invest in like a, a state prison system to nearly the same extent. Hmm. 
Okay. And so this is, this is, I, I think, helpful to understand is that what they do is they just severely disincentivize disagreeing with the regime. Right. So you can stay alive, you can even make a living, but you have very limited options for your life. All of it is totally unofficial. And that's just the way life's going to be. Right. So they, they de-incentivize your minority as an ideology and encourage yeah. you to jump cast. And right. that, that's what East Germany was successful at Yeah. up to 1984, right? But then Re- something happens. Re- re- really until 89. And, and there are several, yeah, there are several things that happen. One is, one is there's always disagreement, largely internal to groups of people. There's always disagreement about whether or not this should, we should continue to live this way. So what I mean by that is East Germans are aware as if you're an American and you're an adult right now, you're probably aware of a time when the country felt completely different. East Germans are not necessarily aware of living in a non-totalitarian country. They are very aware that in the West, you're allowed, for instance, to travel where you want. Like you can go where you want, right? right? So you'd have, right. you'd have to imagine the difference between today living in Los Angeles versus living in South Dakota, right? If you live in South Dakota, you didn't really ever get locked down. If you're living in Los Angeles, you're kind of just coming out of it, but you're aware that there are people who were never locked down, whatever you think about COVID science, okay? You're just aware that they live in a different way. I think you're hopeful. I think you're hopeful that everyone is actually aware of that, but we'll, we'll see the point for now. I think there are many people in California who have managed to not be aware that there are people in different places with different COVID experiences. That's just yeah, my cynicism, but- No, <laughs> no, well, no, I think you're right about that. And and the, the difference, one of the differences in East Germany is the farther East you live, the harder it is to receive radio and TV signals. It really is that simple. Yeah. So if you can't receive them or if you have a set that has certain signals blocked from the manufacturer, then you don't have that information that somebody with a different TV set living closer to the West has. Yeah. Now, how does this tie into the the surveillance question? Because I know you want to talk about this, uh, the lives of others movie. I have not looked at that, but if you want to, is this connected to that right now? Yeah, the lives of others is uh, is a German film from late '90s, early 2000s that is actually really very good. I mean, I hope it's evident from you know the Dave, at least the David Lynch episode. I I think film has amazing potential as a medium, and the lives of others being pretty Hollywood free has this amazing. It's a great film, and it's about an East German secret police agent that their secret police were called the Stasi. That's the German abbreviation, sort of an acronym uh, for the state security service. It's about his surveillance of a couple and what he sees of their lives. And if I remember correctly, the protagonist is under surveillance simply because he's he's an artist. And something that is distressing about artists is that they get ideas that people didn't tell them to have. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. True. And so he's under surveillance. And one of the things that you watch happen over the course of the movie is the agent's own, not, I think, I, I don't think, it, I, don't, I don't think it's dramatized. I think the, the, it's fairly realistic. And the actor does a great job of saying, you know, on a basic level, he's not questioning whether or not he should be doing this. But 
what it does raise and what it's calling back to for people who did live in East Germany is how unbearable surveillance really is to people psychologically and what it does to people psychologically. Because the, the Stasi was very good at, for instance, you know, you, maybe you suspected based on your profession or the fact that you were a Lutheran pastor or something that you were, that you would be under surveillance. You never proved it. You just kind of suspected. So what they would do is they would get into your apartment when you were gone, say for two days and you, they would, they would move like three things around hmm. mess with you. Yeah. And then you come home and you realize the only thing that's happened is that th these three things that were on the East side of the room are now on the North side of the same room. And I didn't put them there and no one's been here. Yeah. Yeah. You realize that you are completely in their hands that right. when they want to kill you, they will. And that is the goal. That terrorism is, uh, is the goal. Yeah. And, and they, and they don't, what they're not going to do. And, and this is where I, again, I think the Stasi was very good at its job, let's say, right. Is they were very good at getting people to, to go along with what they needed from them. Yeah. So one of the biggest revelations that you get, because strangely, really the Stasi's files on people are actually guarded when East Germany falls apart in late 1989, beginning of 1990. They're guarded by citizens who don't want them destroyed. Hmm. And so what you have is extremely extensive evidence of the enormous proportion of the German, of the East German population that was informing on each other. Hmm. in one yeah. way or another, not in a big way, but in one way or another. So to give you an example, German, East German Lutheran churches were very, were very prominent in the 1980s in East German society for hosting, not leading, but hosting what was called or would later be called the peace movement, which was which was sort of implicitly about East Germany becoming a different kind of place, not necessarily becoming non-socialist, but evolving into greater openness. And some of that was actually happening in the 1980s. People were allowed to gather in public in ways that were not necessarily sanctioned by the regime. So what the regime did was they said, okay, they can have this. We'll be flexible with the fact that many, many, many of them want these things. They see West German TV, you know, Okay, so we're not going to do the equivalent of what the regime did in the late 50s when people were streaming out of East Germany. You know, the wall was built in, during our Kennedy, Kennedy administration because of the sheer numbers of people that were streaming either from East Berlin to West Berlin or from other parts of East Germany to West Germany. It was a practical measure to keep down a population that did not want to live under the conditions that it was being given. They were basically, they were refugees that were fleeing the country illegally in many cases. Correct. They did not have a permit to leave, yet they were leaving because, I mean, it's really now, easy. Why, to, now, yeah. I, I'm living today, and I'm just wondering why West Germany didn't send them back, because today that seems to me what almost every major first world country would be doing to such a group. Um, yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. 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 Well, the, the, the refugee debate, this, this also, this pertains to American Lutherans, but we can do that another time. Yeah, yeah. The refu- the refugee debate after the second world war is a very different debate because you're not dealing with a perception of cultural foreignness. Okay. So you're not saying, okay, well, how many Muslims can this city of 50,000 handle before we begin to have enormous legal and cultural issues just on a very basic level? They're, they're understood as other Germans who are in distress. So it is not an enormous political debate. And obviously when they come here, they're going to reinforce our system on a basic level because they're coming here to be with us, not to be with the system that they're fleeing. Right, right. And there was an ideological reason to want them to leave and join us because at the time, the idea of a republic, democratic, capitalistic, NATO, whatever, this this is God and good. And and uh, Marxist communism is is evil and bad. And even yeah. though I still kind of do feel that way about Marxist communism um, in general, uh, you know, the, the the bipolar nature of the narrative at the time would have made all the refugees coming from the, the defectors. That's what you want. Right. Humphrey October is about, yay, Russians are coming and joining America because they bring their tech and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 Well, there, there's also a precedent for it prior to the formation of East Germany as its own state in an event that a lot of people don't even know happened, which is the deportation from Eastern Europe and to a large extent, the murder of ethnic Germans in countries that are now like Romania or Poland, et cetera, where they had lived for hundreds of years. After this after the nascent communist powers take over those countries those people are either ethnically cleansed liquidated killed tortured beaten raped etc or they leave and those people had flooded into what would become west germany skipping over for very reasons known to themselves very clearly skipping over anywhere occupied by soviets now yeah just to make this clear too so these say germans ethnic germans living in romania yeah. Are are people who look like, speak like the Nazis, but were not Nazis. Although when the Nazis took over, they maybe didn't have the Nazis do bad stuff to them particularly. And this is sort of the ethnic blowback of being tied to uh, that country's movement, which it exposes how convoluted the lines are in Europe, really, for me. Like the, the history of Europe's wars is the history of lines drawn strangely and around what would otherwise be ethnic pockets. And then those pockets have trouble living together. Does that sound well, right? There's, there's, there's also a difference here between why things happen on the ground and what a given regime is explaining the reasons why things are happening. So to give you an example from National Socialism, National Socialism actually builds the most multi-ethnic army of World War II, which is the SS, which has mm-hmm. units from almost every ethnicity that Europe contains, including Bosnian Muslims. Okay. <laughs> That is not, however, how the importance of that regime is read by non-Germans when the war ends and that regime has lost, right? Right, So even if if communism is also theoretically international and multi-ethnic, it's read as Russian domination or Hmm. within Poland, Polish domination. So if you are a Prussian, you're a German Lutheran, you either leave or you're going to start speaking Polish every day. You don't get to be unambiguously German anymore. I get it. I get it. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, go, so go ahead. 
Well, no, no. I mean, that's so just, just moving on to your next point, which yeah. is that there's a level of cooperation that takes place post wall right. coming down, right. um, which is pretty unique. Well, there's, there's there's cooperation both in upholding the regime because of those little levers of power that they're tilting in people's individual lives, which is how they get them to inform on each other. So if this is going to happen, if you don't cooperate, you're going to cooperate. And then after the wall falls, there is also a, a certain degree of potential embarrassment for many, many, many people, public figures and otherwise, whom people thought at the time, yes, this is a great example. I mean, this even happened with people that were understood during the Cold War to be heroes. So many of the authors promoted as sort of liberalizing within East Germany, like Christa Wolf or Guta Shempovsky, these different people who are understood as sort of like liberal figures during the Cold War turn out themselves to have been informants as well. So there right. is, a, there, there, yeah, go ahead. Well, so, okay. So the idea of cooperation here it, it we're trying to deal with is there's a certain uh, social stigma or uh, I almost think like a cult-like capacity to maintain the social order, which was yeah. both created or foisted upon them through the Marxist system but then what mm -hmm. you're saying is it was effective at breaking down um, familial barriers, causing mm -hmm. people to be willing to, to rat on each other, which is something. Yeah. And then even to maintain that, uh, those alliances, those social alliances post the party existing and their yeah. own leaving behind its its shadows, maybe even being participating in the tearing down of it. So a lot of complex personalities in this, I would imagine. <laughs> right. Right. And it, and it is a little bit different than you're going to get in either fiction that English speakers are usually familiar with about totalitarianism, 1984, Animal Farm. It's also different than like China's cultural revolution, where in a frenzy, people are just informing and then people are being killed immediately. This is much more of a slow burn. And there's a sense in which it's much more sustainable as a system because it doesn't require you to like kill your own mother it just requires you to tell people about your own mother <laughs> and that is not easy to live with but certainly easier to live with than like spontaneous or near spontaneous violence so you're doing something that ultimately is going to affect the rest of your friends or your mothers or your brothers or your wife's life but it doesn't require you to like just destroy that person's whole world necessarily and you're going to benefit from it your your weakness will not be exposed or your career will be allowed to continue or whatever the bargain was but the reason to bring this up is because when we talk about surveillance this is something that did not rely on technology necessarily to exist it relied on an understanding of human motivation okay so if you have technology surveilling people, that really just optimizes something that any version of a secret police wants, which is the capacity to know practically everything that's going on. Right, right, right. Which brings us to the Silicon Valley connection and the reality yeah. of you know, the Internet of everything, the Internet of things. Um, I used to be very excited about this. I am currently... <laughs> Uh, stripping down and removing the bugs from every corner of my house, wherever I find them, 
no more CIA, no, no more. But, but really, uh, truly yeah. rethinking the placement of how many cameras, how many devices, how many pieces of electrical, whatnot uh, around me. Not so much because I'm just, I think I'm going to be the one spied on, but because there's something just really disturbing about that mm-hmm. level of presence, honestly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I think that that is, that is something that people... That is something that people fixate on because it is ubiquitous and it feels relatively new. One of the things that I see occurring when you look at the history of the Cold War and then you look at the history of the West of democracies that were ostensibly freer and they were they were objectively in many senses freer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then the Soviet Union. Nobody's saying that the Soviet Union is like a freer place to live than 1950s America. But one of the dynamics to notice is that East Germany did not rely on 2021 surveillance technology to maintain the regime that it did maintain. It didn't need those things. I mean, it used technology, obviously, but it wasn't rely. It certainly didn't have the technologies that, especially private corporations right. now. Have. Now, okay, okay, okay. So, so East Germany was able to pull off a Marxist state for a generation without the technology we have now, which yeah. clearly could be used to try to pull it off on a larger scale. I think that's totally. kind of the issue. I mean, yeah. my, my immediate counter to you know East Germany works is okay. East Germany was small, and communism will work for your neighborhood too. So that's fine. But mm-hmm. when you're trying to apply mm-hmm. it to a, a national scale involving multi ethnicities, that's when things start to fall apart. Tribes get involved, right. all that. So. Yeah, from there. Yeah, and that, and that is important to note is that I I believe, I mean, listeners can can challenge this, that's totally fine. I believe that East Germany was carrying out the program, let's say, much more effectively partly because of the much smaller and more homogeneous population than the Soviet Union was ever able to do. Yeah, right. How much how much control can the Soviet Union maintain over a country that has like you know, tens of millions of Muslims, uh, for example. I mean, you know. communism works in Delaware just fine. It's not going to work in Texas. <laughs> that that's that's the point, right? We got to yeah. get this through everybody's head. Uh, yeah. The the surveillance is here, though, whether we like it or not. And so, yeah. I mean, I guess that's one of the questions: is does it even need a communist party for uh, the kind of uh, monkey see, monkey do? Merchants of Cool, who started it first, cyclical question of the white noise. Do we even need someone at the top to push us into a totalitarian bending of the knee to whatever noise we pump in that gets pumped back out at us as a group, with the elites obviously having the control of that at the end? I mean, I wouldn't wait for some specific articulation, you know, sort of like Q style, like listen for these five words. (laughs) For, for the reality to be there. Because the insight here is that the reason that Marxism hyphen Leninism had to happen is because Lenin perceived certain things about human beings that are really independent of one's motivations. That is that for whatever reason or by whatever means you're exercising power over human groups, human souls react to certain situations in certain ways. So you could want to maximize their freedom or you could want to maximize your control over them or whatever your motivation is, but the person will be more responsive to an incentive than to you know, a threat. The person right. will be more responsive to the offer of promotion if you do, if they if he does what you want him to do, than the offer of like having his right 
you know, index finger chopped off. So I think that what East Germany was carrying out pretty effectively was a program of indoctrination and incentivization more thoroughly than maybe any other country. And that certainly was not significantly different in 1984 than in 1974. And that's where I don't see quite the extreme parallel for our current situation, because yeah. indoctrinization, while certainly happening on some levels and on in certain areas. So, for example, I would just say, oh, the value of the carbohydrate. Um, yeah. you know, I, I consider there to be quite a bit of indoctrinization on that that people agree upon, which I, w- I would disagree with. It. But mm-hmm. it's not as though the political parties in power have successfully convinced us all they're doing a great job. I, I don't think anybody right. thinks that. So there's a very, very right. big disconnect there. So the parallel that I'm drawing is that when I hear people talk about the next four years or the next eight years or the next eternity under the American regime, they talk about it as if it's obvious. And then we have to like adjust to everything that they do and be obsessively paying attention to what's happening in politics and hanging on their every word. What, what is going on in East Germany in 1984 is actually in some ways running more smoothly than it ever has before. And yet that regime is over five years later. Right. So okay. why? So, <laughs> right. So what, what you're dealing with is the fact that although they figure out how to manage human beings in a way that is very, is more comprehensive than anything similar, There are dynamics, both caused by their system and independent of their system, over which they do not have control. And so what I'm trying to give with East Germany is a concrete example of holes that become opportunities in a regime's net of control. And those are precisely the things that I think in real time, and especially as the regime narrates the news to you, you are not made aware of. So you're not aware of if you live in East Germany and you're not thinking about how this could all like actually end, you're not aware of what you could do with the fact that now you have groups of people assembling. I think our regime is more aware of this maybe than a lot of us are right now. Part of the reason not to allow churches to gather in any sort of numbers is so that you don't have groups of people getting together and saying anything Mm -hmm. that doesn't run through some regime medium or another that really is hard to monitor. And it's certainly hard to censor, censor the thoughts, censor the feelings that are allowed to come up, which do sort of arise, I think somewhat, somewhat magically in human groups. You know, the the group collectively begins to think of things as possibilities that it didn't Mm -hmm. come into the room thinking individually. So when you have the capacity to gather in groups, which is a fairly new capacity in the early 1980s in East Germany, you now have the capacity to coordinate action and to think possibilities that you couldn't in 1974. Right. So they basically this I thought this earlier when you said you know, the regime became flexible because they saw that their people saw on TV that the West Germans could get together and move freely. And so they began, to, around, op- yeah. they began right. to open this up a little bit and give them that opportunity. And within years, the whole thing is over because right. that very ability to see what others have and move freely is the thing that goes against the control they're trying to make uh, make happen. Uh, you know, reading up on this a little bit as you sent me that one link, it, I didn't know this part from the history that the whole real collapse was a picnic. They all took a picnic yep. where they went across the wall together or something. And then that yeah. was it. Yeah, it was over. Yeah. Yeah. And the wall is a symbol of something that had been going on 
for a couple months in different ways in different countries. So if you think of what is what is literally happening is that in Berlin, the wall is being pushed on and finally pushed down in November 1989. But what's happening in other places, such as the rest of the of the intra-German border or the fact that East Germans are allowed to go to Hungary because it's communist and from Hungary, you can now get in freely to Austria. The Austrians are no longer stopping people from coming. The significance of what are literally walls being pushed down is that they are looking for opportunities for freedom. In this sense, really just the freedom to move where and when you want to right. move your body. Right. Which we have taken for granted and now we can't anymore. Or in some areas, for sure. Yeah, and that's precisely in why, areas. in my mind, this escalated so quickly from, hey, America's morning is coming to, whoa, we don't even have a country anymore. I thought we did. That might be yeah. more leap than most people can take. But it, uh, for me, the catalyzation of this has been the attempt to lock down our bodies and the willingness. Right. This yeah. is where, okay, the growing extent of cooperation among us, the willingness of my countrymen to lock themselves down is what has been right. stunning yeah. to me. And But to be fair... Most of them believe what they're being told about the numbers of the pandemic, that there are hundreds of thousands of deaths all over the place. It's just madness. The hospitals can barely handle people. And I hear this from people and I, I you know my various roles, I'm not always in a position to correct them. Um, but it, it definitely is a perspective people take when they then lock themselves down. Right. And you have a difference there of, you know, East Germany in the late 1950s, early 1960s, when they are kind of locked into their country or you can go to anywhere else that's communist. When that occurs, that population has already been conditioned not necessarily to accept what they're being told because even a person who was a thoroughgoing communist long, I mean, during the Weimar Republic, Bertolt Brecht, when the East Germans rose up against some of these measures in the early 1950s in the streets of Berlin, Brecht said cynically and disappointedly as he looked at a communist regime he had been waiting to happen, he said, you know, because the people have been found to be uncooperative, the regime will elect a new people. <laughs> and so uh, what he meant was that the regime would wanted to make a new kind of German in order to get a German that was cooperative. So if that's like 35 years before the wall comes down, understand how long it has taken to get people, to get a sufficient number of people to be that uncooperative. <laughs> and like every revolution, a lot of the people who are pushing physically in 1989 aren't alive in 1954, the last time there was any kind of large scale revolt. Right. Right. You know, the the young the young desire freedom naturally. That is what is so to me just aesthetically and on a deeper level morally repulsive about five year olds in masks. Yeah, they're amen. neither they're neither a threat, but nor are they meant to live in that bridled way. They they yeah. don't they they're not, they're not supposed to be that subdued and sad all the time. Uh, the young want freedom naturally and you know, I think it's I think it's unwise whether you're a parent or a regime to completely just deny them freedom. Oh, um, parental, parental tactics and discipline and boundaries is definitely worth getting into. Um, but I think the the bigger idea here is that if you crush a flower, the flower is dead. Uh, yeah. 
for humanity as an organism, as a group, as a body, whether we're a city, a, a town, a community, to thrive, there needs to be movement. There needs to be interchange. Uh, the body mm-hmm. must move. You got to get outside every day. I mean, all these things come together. Mm-hmm. And when you have an authority that thinks the way to manage all subjugated powers uh, is by directly controlling their movements uh, yeah. this just kills everything it kills inspiration right. it kills it kills love it, and this is why the thing i think i don't know though that's the story the story is that that's why the thing collapsed is that the inspiration was sucked out of it this is why their space program didn't really ever go as far um in those days as ours did although they yeah. seemed to plug along pretty well after they collapsed uh, correct me on that though i mean is that is that a fair assessment that the the restriction of movement the restriction of freedom undoes itself because it cannot be creative eventually and it, it just can't prop up uh whatever new or against whatever new waves are coming from the outside that makes sense yeah. i don't i don't think it's i don't think it's just a lack of creativity i think it, i think there is there is in every human relationship and also the relationship between a regime whether it's a monarch or whatever it is a regime and its people and when that trust has been completely severed there is the requirement of buy-in is there. And if there is no buy-in, then the regime is unstable in a way that no amount of technology can actually stop. Right. Because you, you need someone finally to say, rather than letting these people knock down this wall and walk into West Berlin, we will shoot them. Right. Right. And they wouldn't do it. And they wouldn't do it. But I guess that's what I'm saying is that the, in order to have buy-in from your people, they have to be able to move to some level and that uh, a country which seeks to so lock itself down for whatever reason, forget the pandemic, you know, any, yeah. any place where they're going to restrict the travel of the individual, eventually the younger males are going to buck straight up. It's just what's yeah. going to happen. Yeah. 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 And, and, and one of the big differences between East Germany and the modern United States is that if you were a, 23 year old male in East Germany in 1989, no one told you that you were, for instance, categorically evil. They would tell you that like Christianity was categorically evil, but not you. Our regime is trying something, I think, much riskier long term for itself in telling much of the population that due to their political views or assessment of recent events, they're domestic terrorists or they're categorically racist. That is the worst evil anyone can imagine at this point. When you do that, when you play a sort of game of demonization with some percentage of the population, I think implicitly you're calling for their liquidation. This is the way that especially whites and white males are talked about in modern America is, is similar only to the way that like tutus the historical ruling tribe of Rwanda were talked about by, uh, by it's the way that Tutsis were talked about by Hutus just before the Hutus tried to kill them all in the early 1990s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're either calling implicitly for liquidation of an evil that great, but you're also making those people think, why would I ever buy into this regime? Correct. Right. And I think you saw this in a video from uh, a reporter following the Biden administration to the swearing in ceremony last week, almost a week ago as we recorded this, because you had National Guard troops along the route and some of the National Guard troops were facing, as they should, it's the commander in chief, 
and some were facing away. And this to me, and they're, they're keep, they're going to keep thousands of troops in uh, DC as, as long as they're running the impeachment trial, which um, honestly, um, and I, and I say this, I say this really honestly, I don't understand legally how they can impeach somebody who's no longer holding office, but maybe I just haven't looked into it enough. It's, it's marketing. Um, it's branding. It's yeah, optics. Yeah. I mean, I get, I, I get that part. I, I, I don't get how they're justifying it to themselves at all. So. Why, why do you think they would need to do that? Well, <laughs> because they'll, they'll, because they, they do seem to run on legalism. So they'll usually have some pretext, right? So I understand that the charge is incitement of insurrection. I'm not sure. I think, I think once you hit the, the witch trial, um, show trial phase the precedent, it doesn't matter. It's about the show. And, and, and then the, the precedent of that show is we just do impeachments for fun and use Congress time to do it. I mean, that's, that's been the last two years of TV, sure. right? I, so I under, I understand that. I mean, I, I get that. I think I'm surprised they're not just doing that by charging him as a private citizen. Oh, I, get, I don't get that either. I'm saying. with you on that yeah. one. I, but yeah. I think maybe he's got, he's got too much of a case there and the courts he'll be <laughs> in may not be able to be bought quite the same way. Yeah. They're different courts. Yeah. Who, I don't so, know. That's what I yeah. don't know. I don't understand yeah. all the ins and outs of that. But I, I, I think I think what's happening is that our regime is trying something ideologically that is through the media, through education, through technological saturation that they that they're exploiting. They're trying something that communist countries never tried, which was to say to their native population or populations, you are categorically evil. I mean, the Soviet Union did do this with certain classes at times, and that resulted in liquidation. That's what they did. They did but, this with landowners, for instance. Now, I, I think I'm, I'm right in what I'm about to say here, though, because what really makes this stunning, aside from this problem of scale and size, that the U.S. is much bigger than Delaware, yeah. uh, is that you're telling a majority that they are a minority that you plan to eliminate. So you're completely reliant upon them believing you, basically at the end of the day, or submitting to your military imposition, at which we talked about last week, you're afraid your military is them. In fact, your military yeah. is them. Yeah, right, <laughs> so right, right. It's yeah, a very we've talked strange about that before, move, yeah. as you point out. It's a strange move. It, yeah. it, is, it is a bet on the power of the gaslight, I, I think. It's a complete bet that, that we just won't notice. And I kind of hope we don't in regards to, I would hate to see the excuse given to go after white national quote domestic terrorism quote because you know some some guys end up getting angry and defending themselves somewhere um very easy to make the wrong statement at this time but at the yeah. same time we yeah. have to recognize that it, yeah there's a majority of of white men in this country who just could build and live well endure this and uh, frankly outwork and out outbreed them <laughs> i'm not kidding uh yeah, I, I, I think that one of the things that they're relying upon in our regime, because it is so comprehensive and because people go to school for so long and are have information given to them so often, one of the big differences, let's say, between East Germany and, and us is they are relying upon a, a kind of certain mental suicide right. in order to assure compliance. So if if I do believe all the stuff that I've been told about how awful I am or people like me are, then I will be more compliant than if I'm like, yeah, I don't really believe all of that. I, I don't really know that that's true. And I'm not sure that it's supposed to affect how I think about myself. So they, they, they are relying on media to a really large extent. And 
this is where I think I think our Berlin Wall is is much more of a mental reality. That doesn't mean that it's less strong, but it's much more of a mental reality than what was going on in the 20th century in East Germany. And I think that they they really have pushed too hard too fast even with smartphones they have pushed way too hard way too fast on telling people how and what to think i i think that there was a fundamental mistake that they that they made sometime in the last 20 years about what people and, and 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 you see it you see it biologically with pushing the transgenderism stuff because like 10 years ago nobody had to say that that was even psychologically sane, let alone amazing, stunning, and brave. And now you're going to be redefined if you maliciously misgender somebody, you will be redefined potentially by the Department of Health and Human Services as mentally ill yourself, which is a, that psychiatric tactic is something that the East Germans would often do. They would, someone, if someone opposed the regime too openly, they would be diagnosed and then institutionalized. Hey, 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 kids. Yeah. But, but I think that our regime had, I, I don't think they have a grasp of nature. That's why over the next month, roughly, we're, I'm gonna, I want to talk about different facets of something that I've mentioned, but haven't fleshed out as the politics of nature. So sort of more positive, like this is where we could go with this specific realm of life, because I think they have severely miscalculated the existence and the reality and the, the weight of human nature and that people, regardless of culture or race or whatever, almost nobody likes to be pushed constantly into negative things and negative thoughts and misery. And if you do that to people, whether physically through the circumstances you're making them you know, live inside their apartment in some big city, or you're making them hate themselves and hate everybody who looks like them or whatever you're doing, when you do that, you're pushing on something that human nature resists in the same sense that people resist being killed or they resist being stolen from. You're getting down to like primal things where people lose all self-consciousness and lose conditioning and basically just want to survive. And the regime is relying not, they're relying on, <laughs> I'm wondering if some of the government check stuff is, is kind of, we're, we're, we're field testing Andrew Yang style universal basic income but they understand that people have to exist materially. They have to subsist. But I, I don't, I think they underestimate partly because there are relatively speaking so few religious people involved in the regime at this point. They hmm. underestimate what the human spirit is by nature and what it requires, like a sense of purpose or a sense of camaraderie or a hmm. sense of you know, a need to be productive in life and to leave something behind you when you die. They're not taking care of any of that. They're not educating. No, no, no. That. That's what Burger King is for. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so they're, they're, in this way, I honestly, I, I, I do sincerely believe this. I think that Marxist countries were much more fulfilling to the human spirit. Now they were completely lying. I think it's totally evil but they understood the needs of the human spirit better in a sense right, of purpose right, right. and national purpose and a sense of like well-being. Yeah. For so the, the, the natural, and ours does. there's a natural law that gluttony does not produce happiness. 
Right. This is not a moral code that I'm teaching from some old book. It's a fact. If you eat too much honey, you're going to puke. It, I mean, Solomon knew it because yeah. it was just what you see happen. And as a country, uh, we have said, uh, let us make our living on the opposite idea. Let us see yeah. how much we can gorge and if that can bring us happiness. And I, you know, I don't know how much of this been, has been the play of the global elite to build uh, an international empire uh, built on pharmaceuticals. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's for the that's for the discord to, to have fun with and all this. Um, but but, you know, seeing the gluttony does not produce joy is, is really yeah. kind of worth looking at. I'm not as optimistic about about the wake up that you are, although I, I uh, confirmation bias technically means, you know, you're more li- likely to believe what you most recently heard, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, news came out this week that the WHO had changed its standards for positive test results with COVID, which means mm-hmm. that in about two weeks, three weeks, we're going to see all those numbers going down and we're yep. going to kind of be able to go quote unquote back to normal, whether that yeah. means with or without masks. I'm, I'm kind of just kind of finger in the air, testing the wind. I'm a parish pastor. I see a hundred and some odd people every week from a bunch of different walks of life. I'd yeah. say 85% of them are going to believe it. They're going to go right back to normal. Like, well, it didn't make sense. I'm not so sure, but you know what? I'm really glad yeah. to be able to go out to eat now. And I like my football. I mean, the Chiefs. Chiefs, are, I'm not from Kansas City, but the Chiefs are doing well. I, I, I like my football. It'd be <laughs> nice to have people in the stands again. And I think that's the majority, Adam. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. And, and, and I don't blame human beings for being that way. Yeah, amen. I also, I also don't think that change actually requires large numbers ever, anywhere, mm-hmm. for any reason. And Bolshevik means minority as opposed to Menshevik, which means majority. So what it takes are is a relatively small number of people acting together with a will to effect change. It doesn't actually require large numbers or the general population to believe anything in particular, because I don't think most human beings are built to handle change frequently or very well. Yeah, that's I true. Think they're, I think they're built for long-term tasks of general significance that you don't have to wake up and think every day, do I love my children? Why do I love my children? I mean, people are not built for constant analysis and you know all this sort of thing. I mean, I don't intend this podcast to be for general consumption by you know all the people that download you know, Murder you know, Mysteries and Joe we're not Rogan. Gonna, we're not going to compete with Tim Ferriss, right? I, no, I don't, we're I don't not going to... So. <laughs> We're not going to compete with Tim Ferriss. Although I think, I think okay. we can compete with Eric Weinstein. I think there's enough people out there that are yeah. hungering for this yeah, kind of totally. stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, although yeah. we don't have any of the backing to get the numbers he does and whatnot. There it is. But I, yeah. I'd like to think we're in the same space. Our Berlin Wall is going to be the title of this episode. And you, you said it a moment ago. You know, it's a, it's a psychic. I mean, that is opposite to physical. Physic, yeah. psychic, not, not like you're projecting. But a psychic mental reality um, that what we need to come out of if we would not live beneath the totalitarian regime, which is going to control most of our neighbors. Uh, We have to come out of a certain mental mindset that is a wall. I'm not going to say it means you don't watch movies. I'm not going to say it means you never look at your phone. I am going to say it means you don't do those things, quote unquote, for fun. It's not your hobby. Um, in fact, you're maybe you look at it more like the matrix, like you're going to get in, you're going to get out. You got to do stuff. That's fine. But life is somewhere else. And if that, for me personally, Adam, I'm still trying to get out of this one. I mean, uh, you know, what do I do when I have a moment to relax and I'm, I'm not going to turn on a video game. I don't know what to do. I sit on the couch and I stare. That's what I do. Cause I'm like, I want to turn on a video game right now. I don't want to turn on a video game right now. I don't even know what to do right now. 
Yeah. What did they do to me? What did they do to yeah. me? Right. And right. it's like, and, and right. working my way through that. Right. You know, it, but that's the Berlin wall you're talking about. You know, yeah. it's a mental hiccup. Yeah, so I'd love you to talk more about that. Yeah. And I, the stuff that I'm going to lay out over, you know, February coming up here is are things that are political in the ancient sense of the word, not in the modern sense of like Democrats versus Republicans. So it means my life in public with other people. A polis is just the place that you live. It's the city that you inhabit. And that can be or as big as, you know, it can be your town. It can be your country potentially, but that's probably pretty useless and you probably can't do that much about it. But political life in the sense of being outdoors and what, what, what you do out there and what that's for and what should be preserved about that political life in the sense of health, political life in the sense of how your family is arranged and political life in the sense of your money, which I'll do kind of at the end of the month, because I want to do some finance stuff, some big picture finance stuff after that, all that. Just fair warning. Last time I talked about finances, I got, I got my face is just the best heat. It was like (sighs) of all the people in the world, who have no business talking about finances is Lutheran pastors. And I had to agree. I mean, I was like, you got me, you got me, but I think I'm telling the truth because I'm saying what other people say, not what I think. Yeah. But yeah. But, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Yeah. we're not coming from the stock that have a right to say, we know what we're talking about when it comes to finances. Um, and I think that's a fair accusation, but uh, I look forward to, to hearing what you have to say. Yeah. And Especially I, about I think, usury. And I, yeah. And I think one of the part of our Berlin wall of the soul is expertise allows life to fragment and fragmentation allows people to be controlled within little cubicles. So I know everything about infectious diseases, but I don't know anything about media. So I'm terrified of everything right now because I know everything about infectious diseases or I know everything about guns, but I don't know anything about infectious diseases. So I've never even considered whether or not COVID is, it's probably not even real, right? Because I just know about guns. That fragmentation of life, I do not think is natural. Mm-hmm. human beings a certain circumscription right like limiting like i'm not an expert on everything that's totally natural but the idea that you just would be an adult human being and know nothing about finance and be like i don't know anything about finance i i, I don't accept that i don't think we're built to be specialized creatures i think if we were the the, the basic things about life wouldn't be things where you need general knowledge like raising children they would be specialized things like being a right, corporate right. cog. I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. This is where the real wall is less even the principles you're going to give. Those are principles you need on the other side of the wall. But mm-hmm, it's, it's mm-hmm. sort of the stuff that – now I'm going to lose his name, the Canadian guy who everyone loves, 12 rules for, for – Jordan Peterson. Life. Jordan Peterson. I mean what he's pushing on here again is that you have to have the decision to make your own framework, to come to terms with your own framework, what it is, and then stand upon that. Uh, the ancients would call this, I think, the epistemology – uh, the upon words I stand and uh, your psyche or suke as a man, a body and soul and breath all together must have words you believe that are unequivocal. And in the current age, most of that is symbolic archetyping that comes from cinema. It's stories, right. things yeah, like right. that. Yeah. And what you're suggesting is that there is a older framework that is uh, a particularly portioned man uh, that, or proportioned, maybe is a better way to say it, a proportioned right. man uh, yeah. who sees certain things as not, they're not hard in the sense of, I don't like math because it's hard. Um, they're hard because they're life and they must be done. And, uh, you know, the vigilance, the manliness, the courage, 
Um, but that's that's the place where again the the sugar e sugar eating uh, cubicle dwelling blue light addicted and then often in later age alcohol uh, numbing mind it has to gradually pull away from enough of that to at least say there is a possibility to have control over my own inner monologue. I can live without having to medicate myself away from every thought that I have. I can live without having to just check out or tune out or turn my brain off, that there is a life where I turn my brain on and this is a benefit to me. Um, and that I, that's just my, I guess, uh, what treatise here, agenda, uh, uh, platform, manifesto. Um, yeah stepping outside the suitcase because what i'm saying at base is that freedom is not a question about what walls the regime has built it's a question about the soul and what the soul is like and if that changes then one day the regime will also change or it will have to go away Mm, yeah yeah dr adam coons you can find him at concordia theological seminary in fort wayne indiana uh send a question to him and i to deal with the show via riffist.com slash contact or you can find the Mad Christian Discord. It's not easy, but you can do it. You found this show. Uh, you can find it, and in it, you can find a brief history of power channel wherein we continue to have conversations about all sorts of stuff. I, I did. I wanted to talk about this before we go. We're, we're almost done, but mm-hmm. you posted this article. Uh, what do you think is going to happen with this guy, Mister Gray? Is that the one? He's this author, uh, uh, fiction uh, the, author. The writer. The writer is James Lafond. There it is. Mister okay, Gray yeah. is just a guy he's talking to. Yeah. I thought that was very interesting and his he, he kind of it's more of a teaser like hey I'm going to tell you what I think is going to happen next soon you keep reading but I'm curious mm-hmm. uh what he said in the past that you found to be accurate and then what from what this article says what do you think is worth paying attention to Well Lafond is a really interesting guy because uh he's a very profound thinker about both history and also uh, different martial arts, as well as modern America, because instead of uh, being in an institution or something, he has spent most of his life living. Uh, he's currently more or less homeless. None of this is a joke. Hmm. He's more or less homeless. But before that, he spent his life running grocery stores, managing grocery stores, usually on the night shift in Baltimore. So sure. as Baltimore has kind of collapsed as a city, that he grew up in. He grew up in the Philly area and then Baltimore. He's seen it all happen. He's seen what happens with people. A very interesting guy. A lot of fascinating things to say about violence. Um, and also, uh, he's tra- he travels across America at this point. He's pretty much always on Amtrak or on somebody's couch. <laughs> and during all of this, he writes pretty much every day. So he's seen a lot of different things in America. He knows a lot of American history. That's why he refers to He talks about early America as plantation America, and he's written at least one book on white slavery, which was at one time the predominant form of slavery, colonial America, because he he sees the story of America as moving from tyranny to freedom back to tyranny. And none of that was ever actually particularly race based. So it's a very interesting perspective on things. And what he's trying to do, he's trying to do the same thing I'm trying to do, which is to look for chinks in the wall and to push until the thing just comes down and so that's what i think that series is looking forward to just like just like i am so again what do you think he has seen that is a chink give us one of those if you can he has seen that the regime does not have any grasp on what working class people go through on a daily basis at all what they suffer what's wrong with them 
or their family dysfunction. And because it doesn't see that, it doesn't understand really anything about their motivations. It's very similar to in the sci-fi novel Dune. It's very similar to how the Empire does not understand what is going on on the desert planet with the Fremen, who are the underclass of that planet. The regime doesn't even know that there are way more of the Fremen than they understand. So one of the things Lafond is saying is that you know, they don't, they don't know what it is like to be a young black boy growing up in Baltimore today. He actually has a much better idea, right, uh, right. despite being a geriatric white man, because he lives with, uh, you know, a, kids like that. And it doesn't understand what it's like to be a working class white man who, because of various reasons, has never been able to put a life together and what that does to your soul. And if the regime doesn't understand the soul, it really doesn't understand anything in the long run. And so that's one of the chinks is that the regime doesn't know who we are really, hmm. maybe in a demographic sense, but certainly in, a, in the sense of understanding our souls. So if the, if the regime doesn't understand the soul, and again, I said earlier, suke is the Greek, uh, you know, psyche, we have the word is connected to this, um, mm-hmm. that there is something about your mind and heart uh, that w- whether you believe in a Christian view of that or not, right, that there's this mm-hmm. internal spirit whatever you want to call it or what does an atheist call mm-hmm. it your life force your tau dao i don't whatever but that an attempt to rule which would not see that in humans uh, mm-hmm. must collapse and that the whole point of today's episode is that's why east germany collapsed even though it was a complete success it was an yeah. absolute success yeah. but it couldn't understand that the soul needed to move and uh and for that reason it moved on and became part of germany again that, that's a really yep. interesting story adam thank you yeah, yeah. yep my pleasure Next week, we're going into, give us one more hot take on next week. We're doing, we're, we're starting on trying to lay out a politics of nature, and we're going to start with going outside. So all the facets of that, a little bit of the history of that in American history, when and where we tried to start thinking about that we had to go outside and we had to preserve something that wouldn't be overtaken by concrete. And then also some, some ways for listeners to focus on to, I think, better their own lives right now. Right on. We'll catch y'all next time.